I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I'm so excited. I have Dr. Shala Vedia here, who is not only an MD, but an MPH, uh, Master's in Public Health. She's a yoga therapist, uh, family and emergency medicine doctor uh, in Toronto. And I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's it's an honor to be here. Awesome. Um, We're going to be talking today about cultural appropriation. I've been doing a series on it, and you are... um, uh, one of an incredible group of, of women who um, are sharing their experiences um, from the perspective of the culture from, from which yoga and meditation originate. Um, and, and myself as a, as a meditation teacher with white skin, um, who spent a lot of time in India practicing this, um, and then coming over, you know, coming back home and being like, I teach meditation now when I charge money for it. And w- wanting to honor, I think a lot of us have issues with this, us meaning, I guess, white people. Yeah, yeah, me too. How how do you teach yoga and and all these things and honor it and bring all that it has, but not, but not um, harm the culture that it comes from? So if we could start with, if you could just talk about your background and um, your upbringing and and were yoga and meditation part of your life growing up at all? Yeah. So, um, you know, I grew up, I was uh, born to first generation, or my parents came from India in the 60s. Um, my dad came as a student um, and uh, to do his PhD at McMaster and um, my mother soon followed with my brother and I was the first one, the first and only Canadian of my family as they call me, uh, born here. I was actually born in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba and then when I was three we moved to um, Nova Scotia which at that time, so that would have been uh, the late 70s, um, it was pretty much, it was very heterogeneous I mean, it was very white, I guess is the right word to say, or, you know, dominant culture was Irish, Scottish, European descent. Mm-hmm. Um, Nova Scotia is also interesting because it was a stop on the un- Underground Railroad as well. So there are large um, uh, African-American or African-Canadian communities that came up uh, through the Underground Railroad because the town that I was born, uh, that I grew up in, Dartmouth, was like a Quaker community. So, um, yeah, so they're they're there was a large black population that came through, um, but they were quite marginalized. They were given land uh, kind of away from, well, it was not arable. They couldn't grow a lot on it. Uh, They didn't didn't get good land and it was quite isolated from uh, the city or the town, the commerce area anyway. So um, yeah, so so I kind of grew up in a school. I grew up in suburbia. Uh, most of my school was white. There was a few immigrants, um, Spanish, Indian, uh, and a large um, black population. So, you know, um, just very interesting to be other and know what it's like to feel, grow up and feel other, um, and always kind of feel like you're standing out or what you're doing is wrong. And you know, in my childhood, I would say I was exposed to a lot of evangelical Christians or those are the people I remember in my mind who are kind of saying what I was doing or my practices were wrong, right? Or I was going to 
burn in hell or whatever. I don't believe in Jesus or whatever. And it was very interesting because I'd come home and ask my parents that. My parents are Hindu background um, and I'm the Buddhist of the family. So uh, the way religion was explained to me was that, you know, all religions are good. All gods are good. Everyone is uh, practicing for peace and love and truth. And so every time I kind of asked a question, it was it was very much, there's not one that's better than the other. It's all one and we're all interconnected. So, you know, I think I got a bit of resiliency from that. Um, and growing up Hindu, uh, our pundit in our mother was fantastic. Uh, I mean, I think we look back at it now and the stuff he taught us was very much um, from the Vedas and very authentic to um, the oneness and the interconnected of the world, you know, of the elements and of people and the environment and animals and all of that and how, you know, it's this greater power um, that is in the universe that's in you, that's in me, that's connected in everything. Um, and what's really interesting is, you know, I did grow up Hindu uh, and, you know, Hinduism has always kind of been seen through the British lens as it's kind of been translated or how people understand it. Um, and it was kind of taught as being a polytheistic religion, which is not really like there's, there's, you know, there's this ultimate force, this ultimate power, and it takes its form, right? Because it's so, it's so big or it's so vast that it takes forms and avatars of um, the Hindu gods and goddesses from the mythology that is Hinduism, much like we, you know, we've learned about the Greek gods and goddesses, um, that kind of thing. And the stories were all um, stories of myths uh, were like Ace of Fables, you know, where you learn something from the story. So each story taught you something and it was pretty much good over evil, um, spiritual lightness versus spiritual darkness, those types of things. So that's kind of the home that I grew up in. And then you'd go to school and you'd have to say the Lord's Prayer. And, you know, I, I remember and I just reconnected with this person on Facebook recently. Um, you know, I had a very good friend. We had the same haircut. She was Indian and I was Indian. Teachers could never tell us apart. You know, oh, we'd always got, it was just, people couldn't say our names. Names got anglicized. You got teased for your names, those types of things. So there was, there was um, this otherness that you kind of grew up in. And, you know, even an element of shame for the way that you do things because they are other. And that's kind of a thing that, you know, as you grow up with that, it's isolating. And, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Gail Parker calls it race-based trauma, or she doesn't call it that, but that's, that's an actual thing. She wrote a book, um, uh, race-based trauma for, or, race, or restorative yoga for race-based traumatic injury, sorry. Um, yeah, and when I heard that term for the first time, it was like, oh, you know, like it, like it cleared one more, cleared the lens of my mind just a little bit more to understand and have a concept for what it was that I was feeling in my body of this otherness. Um, and you know, the work of yoga for all of us is to kind of go through those layers of who we are and reconnect to that divinity within us. So, um, you know, yoga is something for me that I grew up with my, and, and grew up with it as a philosophy. Like it was, it was kind of, it was ingrained in our culture. Like it was through the threads of our culture. So it wasn't kind of like I went to a yoga class, I learned asana and then I did this and then I did that, you know, it, it's, it was throughout. So I remember doing asanas with my, my dad when I was like five, I remember being in our mother and, and kind of getting scared by some of the poses and then um, watching him do it at home. Uh, 
my mother, my father always quoted the Gita, you know, like as philosophy of life, you know, um, that you work, you, you put your effort in, you, you, it's the non-attachment to the fruits of your labor kind of thing. So that was all woven in. Um, and, you know, when I started medical school, um, you know, every Indian kid becomes an engineer, doctor, or lawyer, or whatever. Uh, for me, my root was science. I studied psychology. I studied biology. Ended up going to medical school. And I always wanted to bring in the Eastern wisdom with the Western wisdom. Um, and I remember being a student, and we had a large humanities program. And the, the, the um, dean of that, uh, he, was, he was the dean, and then he'd moved on, um, had said, you know, I couldn't do blend the Eastern wisdom with the Western wisdom here in my medical school at that time in the mid, like 1995, 96. And I heard I couldn't do that. But what he said is I couldn't do that here. Because, you know, at that time, John Kabat-Zinn, Dr. John Kabat-Zinn was doing the studies on mindfulness. Um, he, and, and those programs were just starting. So I really feel like, well, it was a little bit of a gift that you know, when I started to introduce this in my medical practice, I didn't know it was it was already studied, but I, I'm kind of glad that I'm walking this road and that this is what I'm doing now and that we can blend those that Eastern wisdom and we have so much science around it. So um, yeah, my story of how I started to bring it in was that, um, you know, I did yoga in medical school as a release. Like I remember seeing it was offered as a class at my university, um, like, as part of the, uh, the gym or the athletic facilities. I knew I needed something, signed up for it, went with a friend, it was great. I did a practice at home. Wasn't really a meditator in medical school, I would say. Um, you know, medical school and residency, you're just, there's just so much to do, right? At that time I wasn't a meditator, but I would definitely do awesome practice. And then um, more so as a resident, it was my release, uh, just watching videos and doing my own practice at home. And then um, after residency, I went to work in our First Nations communities. I did locums in our First Nations communities in the northern part of Canada. And what I saw there um, was what happens to a people when they're removed from their culture, right? There's this cultural genocide that happened with the First Nations, Indigenous people of North America. Um, and I saw how removed they were and how the illness that came with that, you know, the isolation, the, the, the loss of their practices. And then after that, I came back and I was doing family practice in a community that was mostly South Asian. And I saw the exact same illnesses and the exact same things, you know, diabetes, stress, depression, anxiety, you know, and the mood disorders kind of come after all these other <laughs> dysregulated stress happens in the body. And so uh, my last name, Vedya, means um, Ayurvedic physician. So I was getting a lot of uh, patients who were coming to see Dr. Vedya and they were expecting both the Ayurveda and the, um, and the Western medicine, which was great. Uh, it was great. I was wondering about that because that's yeah. like, like, Vedya yeah. is like the, it's like the title, right? Like my Vedya is my like Ayurvedic doctor. So I, okay. Right. So it actually just pulled me back into that because I, I got like, pieces of the puzzle, right? Like you're kind of walking on this path, you don't really know, but it's like, oh, here I am. And this is what the universe has given me. So this is the walk, this is the path I'm walking down. Um, and if I hadn't worked in the indigenous communities, I'm not certain I would have seen how clear that connection was between loss of culture, loss of the practices that keep that, you know, were ingrained in your culture to keep you healthy. You know, how when you lose yeah. that, you can become so unhealthy. So I'm forever, uh, 
thankful for the time that I worked in the Moose Factory Zone um, and along the James Bay Coast uh, and in Sioux Lookout uh, because it really helped me understand a lot of the social determinants of health a lot better, um, the effect of culture and health, uh, the effect of racism, systemic racism, all of that. Um, so yeah, but and, and that's when I started to bring it into my practice. Um, got frustrated with the medical system, as many of us do. I didn't like practicing it. Went back and did my master's in public health. Went back to school, did my master's in public health, where I think what that year did for me was kind of allow me to feel normal again. Like I feel like I got my voice back when I did my master's. And I was with other people who knew that the healthcare system was dysfunctional and we all wanted to improve it. And I think what that uh, the masters did for me because people always ask me, do you actually use it? And I was like, it changed my perspective and it allowed me to know that I can affect change within the healthcare system and I can do things differently. Um, so I came back, did that, started medical group visits, started implementing community within my family practice. Um, and yet again, I came back to teaching people meditation and yoga. And that's when I heard it was about 2010. I actually heard about the adverse childhood experience score. And I started to screen my patients. And what I realized was all the people I was teaching techniques from yoga, um, which of course includes meditation, mantra, japa, reciting of prayers, whatever it was, were all people who had trauma, you really? know, and it was- I just want to interrupt you for one second. So adverse childhood experiences, adverse childhood events, there is actually, I, I did a, um, an episode with Dr. Stan Sonu, who was one of my residents, and he talked about that. So for anyone who wants to learn more, Please, we'll continue with what you're saying. Ah. We did like a whole episode on that. So Dr. Stan Sonu, for anyone listening, you can go back and check out that episode. Uh, it was released November, it was this week actually. So this week, yeah. Ago, Which, I don't know when this is playing, but it was this. And I have to say, I always start off all my presentations with these letters, or this presentation is brought to you by the letter A, C, and E, and this, the scores two, six, and nine, or two, four, and nine. And if, if people awesome. only take one thing from this, look up the A score. That's the most important thing all of us can do yeah. in medicine. Published in 1997. So this was 2010. I was in medical school when that was published. Didn't hear about it then, even though we were studying evidence-based medicine. Um, heard about it in 2010, started screening my patients. Turned out everyone I was teaching yoga and meditation to were the people with high A scores and they were getting relief from it. And you know, what I realized was, you know, medicine, Western medicine has given us a toolbox, um, but it's an incomplete toolbox. And I started to use practices from the East, you know, yoga and meditation, because I didn't have anything else to offer people that I wanted to relieve suffering. You know, I, my spiritual practice was Hindu and Buddhism. So I understood uh, the philosophy and I understood yoga was chitta vritti nirodha, the slowing down or the clearing of the racings of the mind. So I was bringing that in. It was actually one of my um, Caucasian patients who was a professor who said, hey, this, you're, this is mindfulness. You're teaching me mindfulness. And I was like, what's mindfulness, right? Because the term at that time, I didn't know it. And I don't associate the term mindfulness with meditation, or I didn't at that time. Of course, I looked it up. I saw all the research behind it. And I knew, I was like, that's it. This is my next step. So blessed enough to be able to take that next step and solidify my yoga teacher training, my yoga therapy training. And then I built a new practice uh, just around stress. So yeah. That's amazing. That's my story. It took a little long. <laughs> no, it's such a good story. It's so inspiring. And I, it's interesting because an interview I did yesterday, um, uh, which will be come out 
in a few weeks uh, with Ruby Sales, who's a civil rights activist. She talked about whiteness as, as a, um, a soul murder where you're murdering, you're removing all of people's culture. It's so interesting that you're saying this today. I, I hadn't heard that before. When you remove the elements of a person's ancestry and where they come from and their rituals and how they commune together in, in honor of, not in honor of, but you know, for, for forsaking it all for this larger thing that's so toxic, this whiteness concept, construct, it's like murdering people's souls. And so it's so, yeah, the, the fact that you were talking about what you saw in the indigenous communities um, and in your South Asian communities, that, that's resonating a lot. And in myself, right? Like I, I felt that because I grew up here. I didn't grow up with my grandparents around me, my aunts and uncles around me, my cousins around me. Mm -hmm. Our community became our family for sure. Um, but you lose a lot when you don't have that in terms of your sense of self and who you are in your place. And that feeling other is socially isolating. And we know, you know, thanks to the work of uh, Nancy Eisenberger from UCLA, Dr. Eisenberger, that our social, our pain center, our central perception of pain and our social isolation center is the same, right? Like that's where we experience pain and that social pain is the same as physical or perceived as the same as physical pain. So these things run really deep. And, you know, I, I look, I just did a course on indigenous uh, history for Canada and recognizing the effects of colonialism and, and how deep they run in India as well. India still carries a lot of that shame from British colonialism, our indigenous communities as well. And this whole idea was around assimilation, right? That if we let the, get rid of what they are, so they become us or whatever. And we realize now how much get, gets lost in all of that. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 So what is it like for you as an Indian woman going into yoga spaces now? Like, like in, and I'm, I'm actually curious because I know you went to India for a lot of your training also. Yeah. What was it like to be, so I guess two questions, what was it like to be an Indian woman in the Western wellness? And then what was it like to be an American or sorry, Canadian? To be a, a Westerner, a Canadian Indian woman in uh -huh. India. Yeah, this is where it's so interesting, right? Because you don't fit in in either place. So, um, or there's a, an element of otherness even in your homeland, you know? So it, it is kind of like a, a lost boys or a lost generation kind of thing that happens. And you want to hold on to whatever you can. I think Russell Peters did a really good uh, uh, skit on it once about like when you're in Canada or when you're in North America, you are so, you're Indian, you're this, you're that. And then the minute you get on the plane, you're like, whoa, or you get to the country, you're like, oh, I'm so Canadian and you become the Canadian. And so there's the split in identity of who are you really, um, which I think yoga has really helped me, <laughs> helped me with. But to answer the question around what's it like to go into the Western yoga space, um, you know, it was, it was really interesting for me because at first I really couldn't relate to it. Um, and I was very picky with the teachers I would train with. So, you know, the teacher I trained with when I was in or practiced with in medical school was phenomenal, like very true to the, to the practice. This was in the nineties. So before the yoga boom really happened in, in the two thousands, um, and further on. So then I didn't really feel so different. I was like, yeah, this is the practice that that we do very breath focused, you know, the postures, meditation at the end, the pranayama in between was very good. Um, uh, but then as it, it, yoga exploded, it became very strange. And 
I didn't even recognize it so much so that it wasn't that I didn't recognize it, but I felt like, oh, I don't know this. Like I need to go back to India and, and, and uh, learn how to be a yoga teacher because there's all this stuff that they're doing that I don't recognize. Like I, I can't, I can't figure out how to put this together. There was always a piece missing. So I would say that I chose my, when I was practicing yoga in a studio, I chose my teachers very carefully, people that I could relate with. And I think we all do that. Um, and then when I decided to go to India to learn. I realized, oh no, what I learned was good. <laughs> you know, like how I practiced, yes, that's the way. I studied with the Mohans who, um, who wrote a book called Yoga Therapy. They also uh, wrote a book called um, Yoga Body, Breath and Mind. And they were students of Krishnamacharya. So uh, A.G. Mohan and TKVS Deskachar had formed KYM together uh, at that time. And then of course, politics always happens. Um, but somehow, uh, but yeah, I studied with them and I chose their program because their son Ganesh is also an MD with an Ayurvedic background. So when I was looking to do therapy, I wanted somebody who understood, understood the Western background as well and the Ayurvedic background. Yeah, so, but anyways, walking into, like if I went to the yoga conference or the yoga show, I was, I was always surprised how I could feel so other in something that was from my own culture, yeah. you know, and I think that was very hard all the time, all the time. And I talked about this at another, in another podcast of going to Sitar, which is the symposium for yoga therapy um, and research and being so excited to get there. And then again, having this feeling of otherness, like, oh my God, I'm, you know, and there's people who had taken uh, Hindu names, which I always thought was, so funny because so many of us have to adapt our names to English so that we can get jobs and so we can, you know, people can actually say our names. So a lot of people from other cultures always change their name to make it more anglicized, to make it easier. And so it was really hard to kind of be on the other side and meet people who have taken, white people who have taken on an Indian name, introduced themselves as an Indian name um, and kind of know, well, they didn't, although they may have been traumatized, they have their history, I don't want to take that away from them they don't get penalized the way I do. Like, why is it okay for them to have that name and not okay for me to have that name? And it, it was okay in my space, but you know, I find it, I even found it difficult to even have to explain, well, Vedya means Ayurvedic physician. And people were asking me what lineage you're from. And I'm like, I learned it in my family. I'm not really understanding what lineage is. Um, yeah. So it was just very, it was interesting and it was hard. It's hard. It's that's, still the, that's the harm that, that, that we don't, we as white people don't realize that when we take something on, we appropriate something from another culture, we're harming the people like, like wearing Afro wigs, for example, yes. I just, I'm like, not a costume and black people get like so much discrimination for their hair. And it's, we don't, if, if I'm a white person and I wear, I mean, I so, so for, I, and, and what you're describing is exactly that, like white people taking on these like interesting, you know, exotic aspects of Indian culture and yeah. not having any of the side effects and not realizing that that is harm. That right. is you. Yeah. And that there was a lot of harm before that, that came. So it can be very triggering as well to, to old issues. And it was at that conference that, um, I was sitting, uh, I went to, um, a workshop and, uh, Dr. Gail Parker introduced the concept of race-based traumatic injury. And it was like, ding, 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 ding. That's what I'm feeling. That's what this is. And now that I know what this is, I have a construct that can help me heal. 
can help me walk through that, right? It's interesting what you said about when uh, when people wear afros and stuff. I just started watching on Netflix a TV show called Dear White People, and at one point, the, the at the beginning of this thing, this um, the main character who is black, she's actually biracial, um, is a film student, and she's going into this party where everyone most everyone is white, but they're dressed up like reggae stars or rap stars or I guess the black themed or an African-American themed party. And, um, you know, when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's the experience I've had walking into a white yoga studio or, white, you know, I, I feel that same way. Um, and I feel that way around, like, it, it just depends. Like, it's not every person who is Caucasian or who's white that makes me feel that way. But I often feel that way walking into um, a yoga conference. Uh, where people don't even recognize that I'm Indian or that this is from my culture. Um, and it's very strange. It's very strange to see it played that way. And people, you know, I always found it strange when people would pitch their yoga teacher training to me. They're like, oh, you should train with me. And I'm like, why would I train with you? I, I'm, <laughs> I'm Indian. Like, I grew up with this. Yeah, this is my culture. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I can learn. So, and, and I have phenomenal teachers who have done a lot of studying, who are not Indian, who I absolutely would train with and, and who I practice with today. But I'm just saying it's just, it's just, it's different, right? Like yeah. those te- people also respect the fact that, yeah, this is from my culture. Um, you know, and we, we talk about mindfulness. And we, t- we I mentioned John Kabat-Zinn before. I remember when I met him and I met him at a, a Mind Body Medicine conference at Benson Henry Institute at Harvard. And I remember meeting him and saying, to, I want to thank him for the for instigating the research, right? Like a lot of us are able to do what we're doing now, incorporating meditation and yoga in our practices because of these the researchers who actually took the time to set up the study and show that it actually works. So I am forever indebted to those people and I wish they could meet my grandfather or my uncles or, you know, my family just because it's fascinating to, to see what has come from that, right? So so there's that piece like, appropriation doesn't mean like cultural evolution and cultural appreciation like we're not trying to stop that that doesn't stop it's just making sure that when we're practicing that we're staying true to the root that we're not leaving things behind right that are key pieces of the practice that's where the issue is but i remember when i met him and, and he said wait you're a physician and a yoga therapist and i said yeah and, and he just he like looked me in the eye and he's like you're doing what you were born to do keep doing it. And I was just like, I know, it's so exciting, right? But I can do it because the research is there, right? Like, because there's been validation and that it's evolving as a therapeutic technique. Um, the Yoga Sutras, if you read them, it's a phenomenal text, right? From, um, it's been chanted for, they say chanted for 5,000 years, codified by Patanjali on how to slow down the racings of the mind and essentially end suffering, you know? So, it's a phenomenal text that can inform so much of our wellness. Uh, so it's really beautiful to be able to bring those two together and have people bring that into Western medicine. And that's not the stuff I would say is appropriation. What I would say is appropriation is when we forget pieces or we don't acknowledge where it comes from. So I was teaching a mindfulness course once with a colleague who absolutely think is wonderful, nice, really wonderful woman. Um, but I remember her telling the participants in, in this course that, oh, it's not yoga. It's not yoga. It's different. And, you know, my jaw just dropped because I was like, wow, you just totally erased 
where this totally comes from. And even the participants were uncomfortable because they knew that, you know, meditation um, has a root in yoga or how we were practicing has a root in yoga. And I want to say one thing is that, yes, it has a root in yoga, but meditation is part of every spiritual tradition, right? Um, and you were talking to me about at the beginning about um, being of Jewish background, of whiteness. And, and, you know, I was saying that, you know, but we're all, you know, it's understanding that we're all one, that we are unified, we're all connected, despite these outer shells. And all our traditions essentially say the same thing. So with yoga, we're trying to reach the state of Kavalya, right, freedom. Uh, and one of my colleagues who is also a yogi, is also Jewish, said, you know, that's like Kabbalah. Kabbalah and Kavalya is the same word, right? The B and the V has been replaced, much like in Spanish, the B and the V. And when we look at Om and Amen, you know, the vibration of the chant is the same, right? So even though I also have a course that I've made sure it's not religious so that I can practice it, you know, the, the, um, the secular version of it in my, with my patients, um, when we look at what our traditions were telling us, everybody's saying the same thing. We're using the same techniques. You know, we know this is what calms us and what brings peace, right? Every religion uses peace says that word, right? Whether it's shalom or whether it's shanti or whether it's, you know, salam, it's, or peace, you know, it's, it's the same thing and we're all unified as one. So I guess, I hope I'm not talking too much in a tangent, but I, what I want to say is that we are coming back to that union, that oneness. That's what yoga is and that's what we want to maintain. It's this idea of divide and conquer that it's separate or when we leave part of it behind and take it and sell it at the expense of the other group where we start to do harm or yeah. when we don't acknowledge that hey you know this practice that we're practicing comes from this other culture that is actually made might be oppressed in our culture or these people who have who are from this culture don't get treated the same way within our society why is that you know these are opportunities as we share culture, it's opportunities for us to understand each other, not to further divide. And I think where I get upset or where, what hurts with cultural appropriation is when there's a, a division and a taking without an acknowledgement or yeah. uh, a feedback to that original culture that is, that is bringing this. So that's where I think um, we get lost. And in the medical community uh, or the whitewashing of yoga, that's hard because really this is such a huge opportunity for us to actually start to understand each other better and focus on what's connecting us instead of what's dividing us right so yeah so how do you um <laughs> culture appropriation i think and spiritual bypassing are, are very related so we get a lot of people who don't do the social justice work that you do who say we're all one thing like let's not talk about this whole race yeah. Where do you weave those in? Yeah, so that's incredibly important, right? Because I see that all the time. Oh, everything is one. I don't see division. I don't see color. Um, actually, we do. And the path of yoga is to continuously walk the path of making the right choice to do right action. So we cannot, um, we cannot walk by and see injustice in our society without having the the obligation, the moral obligation to work to correct that injustice. That is the path of yoga. And when, you know, we're doing mindfulness, we're doing the end of the eighth limb, right? Like Smadhi, um, Dhyana Smadhi. So we're talking about the eight limbs of yoga, Yama, Niyama, um, 
asan, pranayam, uh, pratyahara, smadi. So the first part is kind of like that moral code, how we treat ourselves, how we treat others, or how we treat others and how we treat ourselves. When we appropriate yoga or when we appropriate anything, we often take it away in pieces and we don't get the whole picture of how it's supposed to be practiced. And it's supposed to be practiced with all of these pieces, right? That we're not just becoming mindful and dissolving and, oh, I love everybody and life is so wonderful and whatever. No, actually, we're becoming aware that there is injustice in our society. And as yogis, and as this, uh, as we try to unify everything, we have to work um, to address and fix those problems. Yeah. So, you're, so spiritual bypassing and, um, and even bypassing, it's bypassing what yoga is in general, right? So you can't do it. You, you, you can't do it and not, and that would be considered appropriation. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the meditation I teach, you know, you get to, you get to your meditative state to, to transcendence or like so, so quickly and so easily. Yeah. And it's easy to think. And honestly, in my tradition, you're sort of taught, like we kind of hit the jackpot because we found this way to get to it so easily yeah. and all the other stuff follows. Now, a lot of the other stuff follows, but if you don't actively work on yourself and, and your shadow and your own traumas, yeah. You end up perpetuating kind of like a, a yeah. falsehood, actually. Yeah. And that's um, the, the seva part, right? Like that with the tradition, there is a giving back. So yeah, you may be able to figure out the fastest way to get to unity or to reconnect with your true self, but it's also a part to give back, right? So yeah. And also, yes, 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 yes. And also... I can't be liberated until the people around me are liberated until people who, you know, so I think that's also a part of it. People don't realize like they just like, go after the love and light and they're just, I want to feel good. And I want to, but they're forgetting. You can't get to where you're going and have it be authentic and not spiritually. Yeah. If you're, if you're ignoring the lived experiences. Um, so um, it's so lovely to hear that from your perspective. What are some things that, that people with white skin, <laughs> people who are pass as white, um, yeah. should know when they're going into yoga spaces or, 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 or practicing meditation or um, trying to teach yoga or meditation? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I can't speak for what they should know because I don't really know what they don't know, you know, from my own experience. Mm -hmm. But I think having reverence with it, having understanding that it's, um, it's a very sacred practice and not to abuse power. Like, and, and we see this with a lot of Indian gurus as well, right? To watch that power struggle that can start to come when you're a teacher and a student. And, you know, we often say chant um, at the beginning when we're practicing, when we are teachers, so that we understand that, yes, we're teaching, but we're also learning from the student. That this is a give and take. This is a circle of union that's happening, that it's not a hierarchy. So, um, and I've done... I've done uh, retreats and trainings with people who I really felt they're like, you know, and, and maybe that's how they were taught and that's how they um, bring the discipline to it. But I, I really, it's not about a hierarchy, you know, it's really about coming together. And yes, if I'm the teacher, I'm the teacher, but I also respect that you're a student and it's important for me to learn from you in terms of how 
uh, how I teach, right? How I'm teaching is to help you also achieve this enlightenment or this practice or whatever it is that it's this give and take or this, this um, respectful, uh, it's a respectful relationship. What are your yeah. thoughts on saying uh, namaste and chanting om? Um, so namaste uh, is, I'm, my background is Hindi speaking, right? So for me, namaste is very much a, hey, how are you? Namaskar is what I would say out of respect. I understand, um, you know, I, I honestly believe that people probably start to say namaste because a, a, um, a guru probably said do namaste, right? Like this is also called namaste mudra. Angeline Mudra is also called Namaste Mudra. So I think it got lost there. And absolutely at the end of your practice, you want to bow down or you want to um, show respect for that practice and for the Sangha, the people with whom you're practicing. Um, so I get when they want to say uh, the divine in me honors the divine in you, um, but it's really misplaced because Namaste as a word is just very colloquial, hello, mm -hmm. hey, Namaste. So it seems odd. And it's, it doesn't seem revered, like it doesn't seem a word of reference for me at the end, right? So I would say, you know, you can still bow down to somebody and you can still say, you know, the light in me acknowledges the light in you, or you can share peace, right? In our tradition, we say Shanti, Shanti, Shanti three times for ourselves, for our community, for all beings. I believe, um, I'm, I'm not Jewish, but I think you say Shalom, Shalom, Shalom the same way. Um, that it would be, I don't, well, you say it three times anyway, my understanding, I could be wrong. I don't connect with that specific thing, but that doesn't mean it's not done. I'm just yeah. very minimally observant. So, yeah. and at the end, yeah. And at the end of other things, people offer peace. So I would say, um, you know, listen to the people who are around you. If they're telling you, Hey, you know, this is kind of weird when you say it this way, but the intention, I understand your, your, the intention is that I want to honor the people around me. I want to honor the practice that we've just done. Then maybe say, um, peace or Shanti, if you want to say Om, I mean, Om as a, as a chant, it vibrates through everything. So I, I don't um, tell people not to say that. Uh, I do think you should understand that Hindus will use that as, as ending prayer. So it's very sacred. And they would want you to know that that is a sacred religious spiritual practice for them as well. So understand that you're using it in that way. And that way, if your religious practice is such that it's uncomfortable, then you're not enforcing, you're not forcing anyone to do anything that they're not comfortable with. You know, um, I've heard this from patients who are Muslim or people I practice who are Muslim that they don't feel comfortable with that. Totally understand. Then use whatever whatever resonates with you in terms of connecting that oneness, connecting to that peace. Yeah. And That's explain it, explain it to students so they understand what it is they're doing. You know, this kind of follow the leader and don't really understand, or, you know, just do it because I'm showing you or don't question anything is not a part of the yoga tradition, right? Or the Indian tradition. It's very much question everything, understand, right? Everything we're telling you has, has a metaphor, has a story. It's we're teaching through the stories. We're teaching through the chants. And what is the meaning so that we understand what that is? That's beautiful. And shalom also means hello, goodbye. And, yeah, and, right? So it's similar. I've got even more <laughs> commonality um, that, that it's like peace, but also just kind of like, hey, what's up? So yeah. um, I didn't know that about, I mean, I know, I, I know like I've been to India and I know that everyone, a lot of people will greet each other that way. Yeah. Um, but uh, I didn't realize how, how colloquial it felt or how, you know, every day it felt. Um, 
All right. Well, I think it's, it's, it's time to wrap up, but I would love um, for you to talk a little bit about how people can find you, what you're up to, the courses yeah. that you offer so people can uh, partake of your wisdom and your, your greatness. Yeah. So there's a few things. Um, I, you can find me at the yogamd.ca. That's for Canada.ca uh, on Instagram, the yoga.md, Facebook. I have a Facebook page, the yoga MD. And I, I post stuff on there coming up in the new year, my burnout recovery program, which was the yoga of stress resilience. It's now um, rest, reset, rise. We follow the yoga, the process of yoga to actually um, recover from burnout. So regulation of the nervous system, releasing stress and all of that um, and all the practices, polyvagal theories in there. Uh, that's going to be launching in January. Um, I also do, because I've had a head injury, I've had a concussion, I've also adapted it for concussion, but the concussion program right now is mostly for my patients here in Canada. But watch out for it because it'll probably get put up online as a course for people to access as well. That's amazing. I love the, yeah. the, the breadth of, of these practices. Um, and I, I laughed when you said .ca for Canada because, you know, our American-centric world, we're like, what? Dot what? I know. Oh, it's like, com. you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I wasn't laughing that you, I hope you understand. But for anyone, like, I think watching the video, they understand. But if you're hearing the recording and wondering why Jill's laughing, it's just because the fact that you have to explain that means you've had to explain it so many times and that people don't yeah. understand who aren't from Canada. So thank you yeah. for your grace. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, Dr. Shayla Vadia, um, I'm sorry, Shayla Vadia, um, such an incredible conversation. We could go on forever and ever. Um, your, your gifts are, um, very wonderful. Your way of explaining it all. Um, and the, the joy, I think people can hear it in your voice, but for the video, it's just, you're, you're radiating this love about what you do. So it's, it's very inspiring. Thank you so much for, for joining. Thank you for having me. And I, I do feel blessed to be able to bring these two things together. It's, it's very, um, we all have something right. And, and I'm blessed to have this. So Thank you so much for having me and allowing me to share my culture with you. You're welcome. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.